Choke Points, Let's go. brought to you by Acton's oh. Quality Roofing. Let's go. We have been rained out on I-5 construction a number of times this year, but now, Chris, we're going to be chilled out? Yes, that is the possibility this weekend. You'd think, looking at the forecast this weekend with nothing but sunshine, that'd be the perfect time to wrap up the Revive I-5 southbound project in Seattle, but it's not. It's going to be too cold. This work is going forward, but it just won't be able to wrap up as expected. They won't be able to get as much done this weekend as they thought. The Washington Department of Transportation's Tom Pierce describes what's left in the expansion joint replacement project. We finished up with the work on the main line, and all we've got left is some paving on the I-90 ramps to southbound 5, where we need to pave around four expansion joints. The plan was to finish up that paving this weekend, but it's going to be too cold overnight. Pierce explains why temperature is such an issue. We have to hold off on the paving until we get into the daylight hours and things warm up a little bit. The concrete we are using does not set up well and would not last as long if we did it in conditions like really cold conditions. Workers can only pour this particular concrete when it's over 40 degrees, and that won't be the number that we're hitting over the weekend overnight. We're not going to have that overnight this weekend. We're only going to be able to work at two of the expansion joints this weekend. We're going to have to find another weekend where we can come back and do the other two. Which Pierce hopes is next weekend, considering the lack of events at the stadium district. With the Mariners and Sounders finished, and then the Seahawks out of town this weekend, and they've got their bye next weekend, we're really hoping we can get this work wrapped up in these two weekends if the weather will cooperate. All of this weekend's work is going to be centered on the I-5 and I-90 interchange just east of the stadiums. We are going to be working on the I-90 ramps to southbound 5 and we're also going to have the collector distributor ramp to southbound 5 closed. So if you're heading out of downtown, you won't be able to use that CD lane all the way to I-5, but you will be able to get off and get down into Soto. People will be able to go into the collector distributor They're just going to have to exit at Dearborn, uh, I-90, 4th, or Airport Way. So you will be able to access I-90 from the CD lanes. Now, WashDOT needs to finish up this work this year so it can focus on the next phase of Revive I-5, which starts next year. That's a multi-year project to replace the concrete from the Ship Canal Bridge north up to Northgate. So uh, they're getting close. We can almost put a a bow on this thing, but not quite yet. Did I hear you say they're about to replace the concrete on the Ship Canal Bridge? Well, it's from the Ship Canal Bridge North. So there is some work on the Ship Canal, but they, they are primary. This is they're basically doing the exact same thing they've done from the West Seattle Bridge into downtown. Now from downtown North up into Northgate. So yes, that's going to be part of the project there as we go forward. But I think it's about a four-year project starting next summer. So uh, mm. yeah, just prepare for that. I think Colleen wants to at least etch her name into the new concrete when it, when they finally get to the bridge. <laughs> I think that I, nice. I can make that happen. I know yeah. some contractors that Do might you? have that. Yeah, okay. I, I, I can. We can put all. We can put our names and. How long has she been asking feet, for that? And yeah. we'll, we'll make it like the Chinese theater in uh, in, That's right. in, in, in in Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard, right? Yes. <laughs> we'll put our Chinese. feet yeah. hands in there. Yeah. And the latest on the fatal shooting at Seattle's Ingram High School. Two students are now charged, and last night the school board met to decide just how to move forward from this. Kyra News Radio's Hannah Scott has the story. Seattle Public School Board President Brandon Hersey emotional as he opened the meeting. Yesterday, the Seattle Public Schools community was shaken by an incident of gun violence in one of our schools. The Ingram community lost a student. A family lost a child. But perhaps most tragically, 
a child lost their life. No words or condolences could ever begin to rectify the loss placed upon this child's family and community. The last few years have taken a lot from us, but none more so than from our children. It's hard to imagine the horror that the Ingram community experienced yesterday and that far too many school communities across the country have experienced in recent years. The horror of hearing a gunshot outside of your classroom, of receiving a text from your child that there's been a shooting at school, of our educators and staff wondering if they're gonna make it home that night. A scenario he says has become all too familiar. It's a horror that students, parents, and staff hope to never experience and is something that we intend to do everything in our power to prevent from happening again. In this moment of sorrow, fear, and confusion, Seattle Public Schools reaffirms that the safety of our students, the safety of your children, remains not only our focus, but our top priority. But as difficult as this was for the adults to comprehend, it's with that much harder on the students. The board heard from two student board directors at the meeting, Luna Crone Barron, a junior at the Center School, and Nasira Hassan, a senior at Chief South High School. I, as you probably might be able to tell, am very upset. And I think I can speak on behalf of my peers when I say that we, were, we are all very upset. Yesterday, I was talking to some friends in a class as we were in shelter in place. Um, some friends of mine who knew the victim and they were telling me about all, all these funny stories of, of this kid um, and all these stories that they had, all these sweet memories. And, you know, we all smiled at these sweet memories. And then that kind of turned to a grimace because we remembered that that person who we'd laugh, who, who they'd laughed with and smiled with is dead. Both speaking passionately about their reactions and their anger. I mean, the thing that's been, been making me as a person... Uh, very, very frankly angry is that the response I've seen, the communication I've seen is, oh, well, this was an isolated incident. Oh, well, it was a fight between two students. So what? There is still a child who was killed at school. Just because it was an isolated incident, just because it was a fight, just doesn't make it any less unacceptable and at any less a failure on the part of our district, on the part of all of us up here. And at this moment, I feel lost. My heart is completely broken to this tragic incident that happened at Ingram. There's really no words to describe how I feel. So knowing that people who were there I, I can't even, like, imagine how they feel, how the families feel. We see these things happen across our nation, and we send our solidarity and our condolences, but it the feeling that you have when it's so close to home or in your school building is 
a different type of feeling. One part of the conversation centered on whether or not school resource officers should be put back into schools. Resource officers were removed after the murder of George Floyd. Many in communities of color see them as a part of the problem with the school-to-prison pipeline that disproportionately affects communities of color. School District Superintendent Dr. Brent Jones says there's a three-point plan that's been started to address the situation. First, there's safety and security option to diagnose what are the district's safety threats. There's also a community action team to make immediate determinations of what can be done right now to make Seattle public schools safer. Thirdly, Seattle public schools will launch a child well-being council led by nurses, pediatricians and psychologists and others with expertise to reconcile mental health and social and emotional matters. Because as dangerous as the guns might be, many believe the larger issue is the mental health crisis amongst our students. Remember the days when we wondered whether it was okay to put students on school boards and after listening to those kids... Yeah, it's it should be mandatory. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Time for your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Baird. There's a new nightclub in Tucson, Arizona for ages 18 and older and encourages anyone with special needs or disability to join them for a dance party. Club Zeus only has one requirement for all attendees. Creator Chris Ann Black tells KGUN TV. They come in full glam and they look gorgeous and you know it's just it's incredible to see them and their confidence and you know it just all shines. She's a mother of five and named the club after her son who has autism. He, even though he's only four years old, she says she thinks about his future often. And thinking about his future, you know, with regards to like therapies or activities that he's involved in, I want to see more activities take place. Black said she feels like parents with kids who have special needs often have to explain their behavior to other people. Sometimes we get really great responses where families are just saying, oh, you know what, that makes total sense. Let's, you know, let them continue to play. And then other times, you know, families will remove their child and then he's kind of left alone to to deal with it. So she hopes Club Zeus will be a place where no explanation is needed. Being his advocate is one of the greatest things that I could be, you know, being his mom is amazing, but being there to really defend and support him is probably the best thing. Again, that's in Tucson, Arizona, if you're ever visiting. And now it's 748 from the G and Ursula show. Here is Ursula herself, which means I've got Ursula here, who is you want Twitter to fail. And we've got Colleen at home, who is convinced that Twitter is is basically uh, an obligation for those of us in the in the public eye, and you want it to succeed. And I've got Elon Musk. No, here. I didn't say that. Oh no, <laughs> I don't want it to succeed in its current form. But I do think it's it's uh, stubbornly necessary for journalists these days. I see. Okay. Well, e- here's Elon Musk's tweet from November six. Twitter needs to become by far the most accurate source of information about the world. That's our mission. You think that's going to happen, Ursula? Uh, no. Um, but let me just do a little bit of a correction because it's not that I want it to fail. It's just I don't enjoy Twitter. So no. I honestly don't Are you care. On it? Yes, oh. out of requirement. <laughs> right? Somebody years, told you. A few years ago, our bosses said we, Twitter. no, yes, our bosses said we kind of have this expectation that you will be on social media. So uh, how much time do I spend on Twitter? As little time as possible. 
yeah, because well. I'm always in a bad mood afterwards. So I use it for journalistic purposes, yes. For that purpose, when you are following news organizations right. and looking for breaking news, I love that. But for the snark factor yeah. and for people just being horrible to each other, um, I'd rather get a root yeah. canal. So I'm on it because, I, yeah, I want to get you know breaking news. But when it comes to participating, as I've been told to do, I'm a very <laughs> naughty boy. <laughs> right? I know. Yeah, you're you're rarely posting anything or replying to people. I've tweeted at Dave so many times, and he's like, "I'll tell him three days later." I'm like, "Hey, you ever see that tweet?" And he's like, "What tweet?" And I have to like lead him <laughs> to the tweet. It's a different so, button that I'm used to pressing. I press the little birdhouse. You know, but. sometimes I'll just like include Dave in a tweet for fun just to see if he'll he'll see it. But um, no, I I I've noticed too. So the the verify, I I can't figure out Elon Musk's new eight dollar policy and what official means and what verified means and what the blue check means and the gray check means. It's so dumb. I just want to be able to use the platform without worrying about that. But so he started this new $8 verified account thing and people are applying for it and they're impersonating major corporations and being really naughty. And so people are saying like, if this continues advertisers are going to leave in droves as they as they already have and twitter's going to fail miserably like musk cannot contain the madness that is twitter <laughs> well and i th- i'm sure that is driving him nuts it's also um making him lose a lot of money right now not that he doesn't have a lot of money to lose but um my understanding is he wants half of the revenue of twitter to come from those subscriptions but who's gonna pay for this madness that's what i'm saying ever since he took over i can't even all i get now on my feed are random videos of like fights on streets from people a bunch of gifts um some videos of cats like i'm getting nothing of value the algorithm is so messed up that I can no longer use it even for journalistic purposes. So I can only imagine other people who want to use it for legitimate reasons are going to be like, all right, peace out. And then who's going to pay $8 for an account? Well, certainly not me. No, um, not me either. Yeah, and then the, the other part is um, now, it, just in terms of working for Twitter, he fires half the employees, then he realizes oh, I want some of you back, and then now he's telling everybody 100% in-person work. That is his first email to his employees. Yeah, <laughs> that could be a lot of happy 40 people hours there. a week in yes. person. Everybody's like, what do you mean at least 40 hours a week? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know if, I'm, if you picked up on this, but there was um, a, a long uh, explainer from former Twitter employees who were in content management explaining the various stages of Twitter's demise because it yeah. has happened at every other social media platform when you don't have some kind of human uh, content monitoring, what we used to call uh-huh. editors. Yeah, uh, <laughs> fact checkers, yeah. Yeah, who can, who can filter out the, the nonsense. People think that, oh, freedom, freedom, a free-for-all is great. No, it's like the tragedy of the commons. If nobody's responsible for a piece of land, it becomes a homeless encampment and piles of trash build up. And that's what Twitter's becoming, a homeless encampment. Right. <laughs> Yikes. Oh, okay, people so people have nowhere else to go. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. No, but I just... there are other places to go because uh, isn't Jack Dorsey, or, or there's a German group, isn't it, uh, behind a whole new platform, I Colleen? I don't know if I haven't heard that, but I don't know if I want to join another one. Like, I I think Twitter started out really, I think I joined in 2009. I've been on there for a long time, and that was sort of at the beginning when journalists were joining this social media group. And the way it has devolved, especially after the 2016 political atmosphere, into people just picking fights with you over 
everything. I could post like, I feel really good in this outfit today. And people could be like, oh, great. Out there flaunting your body. That's really, you know, professional of you, Colleen. And I'm just like, wow, can't I even feel good about one thing on this platform that I don't know if I could jump to a new one, hoping that one won't also devolve into this. I got a great invention. It's called the text message. You can have, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, a br- group of people that, you know, like my, my biggest following is the 11 people on my text message group, which are all mostly family members. And they're uh-huh. all very nice to me. So if yes. I were to tweet out, what was I wearing? Everybody would say, nice choice, Dave. And <laughs> right. suddenly my my attitude is much brighter. If you want to see what Dave's wearing, go on to Gene and Ursula. As Facebook page because <laughs> you are a hit on our, our Facebook page. I know. Well, okay, the new social media platform is called Mastodon, and uh, so far, half a million new signups as people are doing a mass exodus from Twitter, and uh, apparently the network servers are already overrun. <laughs> oh, okay, I'll, I'll check it out, but I don't know if it's as snappy to say, have you Mastodon somebody yet? <laughs> Okay, it's time for traffic. Moving on. That, <laughs> Jerusalem, that violates our standards. Content like moderation. Whoa. Content moderator, Hold on. Let you me send out a Mastodon that. real quick. Okay. It's, uh, the president this, just Mastodon. This whoa. traffic is... Can you press the button? Wow. <laughs> wow. She's not in the studio. You Some button on press. standby right now. Okay, very good. Mastodon is not a naughty word. When you make it a verb, it is. Well, tweet is a verb. Do I, do I have to press the dump button? I haven't done it in 41 years. Let the years. record show your minds went there, not Dave's mine. like running over <laughs> here right now. It is... Uh... This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. We thought the return to Eastern Standard Time would be a good time to talk about sleep. And Dr. Eric Prather is the author of The Sleep prescription. He teaches at UC San Francisco. He's a sleep science researcher, has an insomnia clinic. Is there something about the age we live in that has made insomnia worse, or is it just a coincidence? (laughs) You know, I mean, I think, you know, one, people are kind of waking up to the importance of sleep, but also kind of the levels of stress that we experience in the day-to-day is often overwhelming. And for some of those individuals, you know, that might spin into kind of a more chronic experience, which we know is of as insomnia disorder. So, you know, I, I think we're, we're kind of always kind of vulnerable to kind of the stressors of the day and those what, that what kick off insomnia typically. But, you know, we're just in some cases experiencing more of them or we just have more access to them. You have a, a seven day regimen here. Before we get into that, I'm curious as an insomnia researcher, when somebody walks into your clinic, what's the first, you know, complaining of insomnia? What's the first question you ask them? It's usually how long has this been going on and, and what kicked it off? You know, admittedly, in, in, in the people that come to our clinic, it's often like, well, I've had insomnia for 10 years and I don't remember what kicked it off. And then we kind of dig in. And, and how do you define insomnia? Is, is it the people, because I don't see how it's possible to literally stay awake all night and never sleep. Yeah. Yeah. So an insomnia disorder, which is a clinical diagnosis, is uh, difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep or waking up earlier than you'd like three nights a week for at least three months ah. um, and that it affects your kind of daytime functioning. So it doesn't have to be kind of not falling asleep all night, though, you know, certainly people do experience that. In some cases, it can be pretty severe, but, it, you know, it doesn't have to be as severe as, as total sleep deprivation. OK, so when you ask that question, what kicked this off and, and you get an answer, what are some of the typical answers that you get? Stress is probably the most common precipitant, but, you know, sometimes it's other kind of life changes. Also, it can be other things like substances can kick off 
um, insomnias. And so we just really need to kind of get a good thorough history of what's going on, see if there's any other medical conditions that might account for it or any psychiatric conditions that often kind of go along with a lot of these uh, sleep disturbances. So a lot of times just worry then. A lot of times, yeah. I mean, it starts out that way, right? And we all have kind of worries in our lives. I mean, none of us are immune to that. But it's 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 when you begin to kind of lose this confidence in your ability to sleep. And that can be really distressing. You know, one of the key things that happens with people with insomnia is a lot of the distress they're experiencing is distress about the fact that they're not sleeping. Right. Right. And and so they on itself then. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they and they make behavioral changes to try to fix that. But they often kind of end up undermining how sleep works. And so an example would be, you know, people have a really bad night of sleep. And so they nap a lot during the day Mm -hmm. or they get in bed really extra early because they don't know when sleep's going to happen again. But spending extra time in bed um, actually feeds insomnia and kind of disrupts how sleep is supposed to be regulated. And so ultimately it, it. takes kind of an acute problem and makes it a much more chronic one. Yeah. I know just anecdotally, I sleep better when I've had some real exercise during the day, but that's basically the only, the only trick I've ever used. So, so where do you start when you're trying to rehab somebody who's suffering from insomnia? Yeah. When, you know, we, we really actually start in the morning. You know, one of the things that we want to do is really regulate the sleep cycle and the structure of someone's sleep. And so because people have so much concern about falling asleep, we don't, prescribe a specific bedtime, for instance, because we never know. We we're, we don't make sleep happen. Sleep happens to us. But we can control when people wake up. And so we, we start with uh, prescribing a standard wake-up time that they can keep seven days a week. And what that helps does is it kind of sets in line your circadian rhythm and also sets the beginning of what's called your sleep drive, which is critical for kind of ensuring that you have kind of a robust night of sleep. And then we kind of go from there throughout the day and then work on things that happen at night to ensure that you have this transition to bedtime and manage your worry and all these other things that are important for improving insomnia. Okay, so a, st- a steady, reliable wake-up time, but not necessarily a set bedtime, huh? Right, because you, so you set a wake-up time, and it turns out that we, as humans, kind of use the same amount of energy throughout the day, day-to-day. You'll tend to get sleepy around the same time each night, right? And that'll happen naturally because your sleep drive will build up across the day, and that's your kind of need to sleep. And so mm-hmm. you'll have this time where you'll get really sleepy because you've been up for X amount of hours, And that will make it a reliable bedtime. But we don't want to put the onus on the person to be asleep by a certain time because they already have trouble with that. That just creates more distress because they're watching the clock and they're supposed to be in bed at 10 and it's, you know, 959 and they're alert and they're starting to wonder like, oh, my gosh, am I going to sleep tonight? The doc said I need to get to bed. And that throws a wrench into everything. I see. So the key is not to worry about the sleep time, but let it happen to you. So what if it but then what if it doesn't happen to you? Right. And that's that's absolutely one of the things that we have to contend with is people have this fear that it won't happen to them. It turns out that sleep is uh, as important to us as food, water and oxygen. And we can actually live longer without food and water than we can live without sleep. And so we know that that can't go on forever and people will get sleepy. But, you know, we have to get over this kind of fear. And so one of the tactics that we have both in our clinic and is mentioned in the last chapter of this book is to actually go to bed later than you usually do to kind of build up that sleep drive. And so as you get sleepier, people, especially with with insomnia, they'll begin to notice those sleepiness cues that that they felt like were lost. Yeah. Right. They're starting to be reacquainted with sleep. And that, you know, is really important to kind of building back up that confidence that sleep isn't something you need to worry about. 
So the way to get more sleep is to stop worrying about getting more sleep. <laughs> right. If it, if it was only that easy. Yes. But yes, that's exactly <laughs> well, right. Here's what I was going to bring right. up. I mean, is, isn't Netflix to blame for this? Because the first thing I learned <laughs> about Netflix is once you start watching, you can't stop because it just feeds you right into the next episode. And if you don't want the next episode to the next program that's been using artificial intelligence is scientifically proven <laughs> to, to keep you up at night. It's it's a it's a genius model for sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I think that that really speaks to the importance of protecting you yourself against things that really engage your brain. And so when people are winding down, I you know, I always point them towards like reading, but not something that's like a page turner yeah. or like listening to music. Find something or boring. Watching, yeah, watching television, but things maybe you've seen before. Mm-hmm. You know, where you don't need to know the ending. Um, can all of those things can help facilitate kind of that calmness. And, you know, that relaxation that's so critical to help you fall asleep. I have to ask you, of course, about the big question. And that is, are you a fan of daylight saving time or not? <laughs> so, you know, I think the, the entire sleep science uh, community has uh, decided that we should uh, stick on standard time. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly that has uh, really important uh, implications for uh, our circadian rhythms and light exposure in the morning, which we know is so key to entraining our body. And mm-hmm. so uh, my vote is to uh, stick with standard time now that we're on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly the the risks that occur uh, when we move to daylight savings time in the spring are are pretty steep. I mean, you know, there's a 6% increase in motor vehicle fatalities yeah. the Monday after daylight savings. You know, those lives could be saved if we stay on standard time, which I think is is uh, the right move. Dr. Eric Prather, author of The Sleep Prescription. Dr. Prather, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. You can ring my bell, ring to bell. 848 Seattle's Morning News. Cairo News Radio's Rachel Bell doesn't really care what you think about the weather, but she might ask you anyway. So what is the opinion of Americans on small talk? (laughs) Most Americans dislike it. I would say most Americans want to avoid it. That's Matt Jazahowski with North Star Inbound, a marketing agency that analyzed a study about small talk. Of the 1,000 people surveyed, 71% said they prefer silence to small talk. And 89% of Gen Z use their phones to avoid making small talk. Hi, I'm from Cairo Radio, just right up the street, and I'm doing a story on small talk. Can I just ask you a couple quick questions? I'm not doing it. You don't have to use your name. You can just be a voice in the void. Not only do people hate small talk, they don't even want to talk to me about small talk. What are the most common topics when people engage in small talk? We ask both the most common and what people dread the most. America's most go-to topics, the weather. You know, what are you doing this weekend? Uh, What do you do for work or how's work? Current events in sports. And that we also saw the most dreaded sports, current events and weather show up as well, too. So people love and hate talking about sports? I think a lot can be dependent on if you like sports or not. If you dread it, that's probably the last thing you want to hear. If the team is doing great, you're super geeked about it. If your team is lousy constantly, you're like, I don't want to talk about them. They're lousy. 
The thing that actually confused me the most or threw me is that it says seven in 10 people like making small talk with friends, but they don't like making small talk with strangers. I am the exact opposite. If I'm making small talk with a friend or a partner or family member, I feel like this is so sad. We have nothing to talk about. If I'm talking about the weather with, you know, my best friend or my partner, I'm like, dear God, what has happened with strangers to me? I feel like it makes more sense because you don't know them. You don't have topics to go to and so it just feels like the norm that you would make small talk with strangers i agree with you too i'm the same way like i think it's super depressing if i'm talking to my mom and we're like what's the weather like i think where people don't like it with strangers is where they're out in some place in public so we found like retail stores grocery stores restaurants the only people who agreed to talk to me had a positive spin on small talk what is your opinion on small talk On small talk, well, it's a good way to get to know people when you first meet them. So you don't mind it? Oh, no. I was a politician's wife, so (laughs) I can do anything. So you had to talk to a lot of strangers and just schmooze. Yes, yes, I did. That's Margot Hill, who was also an oncology nurse. This is my husband here. What is your opinion on small talk? You know, how's the weather? Oh, I think it's fine. I'm, I enjoy it with people. So you were a politician. What's your name and what would you do? Uh, my name is Tim Hill. My last job was a county executive for eight years here in King County. I'm retired and glad I'm out of politics. <laughs> I guess small talk isn't all that bad. Look who I met by asking strangers boring questions. One of the big positive takeaways that was, you know, 91% of people that we surveyed, they use small talk as a means to turn into a real conversation. We're taking these small topics that are maybe irrelevant and it sparks this like real meaning conversation where we learn more about each other and potentially you know, develop a friendship or a relationship. Half the people surveyed said they engage in small talk just to be polite. But not Margo and me. No, for us, it's much deeper than that. We could chat all day. Yes. So let me get this straight. People feel they have to engage in small talk, but both parties to the conversation hate the conversation that they are obligated to get into. Yeah, so I think what people need to do is take action and change the conversation. Yeah. Like, most people don't like small talk, but we all initiate it sometimes, and we all reciprocate it when it's thrown at us. So... You know, I used to do this thing. I don't do it as much anymore, maybe because since the pandemic, I don't go to as many parties. I would be in the car on my way to a social event and I would think of topics that I would talk about so that I would have things to bring up. You would plan out your small talk? Not small talk. So I would have like medium talk or big Ah, talk. Not serious. I would think of like, what is something funny that happened to me this week that I could bring up and tell this story? What is something weird that I saw? What is like the best weird thing I saw in the news? You treat your small talk like a radio interview. I guess that's true. You prepare for it, (laughs) don't you? So you have your own stories and then you anticipate what the other person might say and you have a comeback. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, uh, oddly enough, I'm on walks with my wife, she's an inveterate reader. She is in the middle Mm -hmm. of probably four books right now. And so I will ask her about one of the books that she's reading, and I'll basically interview her Uh like I'm doing to you now. And and it's, it's fascinating, and I feel like I'm reading it with her. Many times. Oh, that's great. And the good thing is, since we're, we're talking about a subject that neither of us is directly involved in, you're not in danger of saying the wrong thing, right? right? Or, or hurting each other in some way. Has your wife ever complained that you interview her? No, I don't think she's 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 complained that I don't talk enough about interesting things. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I guess you would recommend this article then. It was so interesting to talk to you about it, Rachel. I enjoyed myself as well. <laughs> That's Rachel Bell. That's Dave Ross. And what are the chances of running into a former King County executive? T- Tim Hill served from January 1986 to January 1994. Was preceded by Randy Revell. Wow, remember Randy Revell? Yeah, that's a wow. That's and going then, way and back. after Tim Hill came Gary Locke. Yeah, went on to become governor. Wow. You ready for a traffic report? Sure, I am. I, I mean, I could do some more small talk. I, I'm really pretty good at it because I, I go to bars alone a lot. And it usually involves no, that like is sad. We, we usually see something on the TV, something really weird. The guy looking like, "Hey, well, did you see that?" Oh, like, yeah, whatever. And then uh, that's about it. <laughs> you can do. I'm Dave Ross, and I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM, or subscribe to this podcast, and you'll never miss the show.